it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and him, Kieran Maguire, football finance expert from Liverpool University. And Kieran, we're millionaires. We, we are indeed, yes. Uh, producer Guy uh, uh, sent, sent out a message to us uh, on, on Friday night that we've had a million downloads, which is probably between me and you, a million more than we anticipated when we started this nonsense. <laughs> yes, and thank you to everybody who's listened. That, that'll be the strangely absent producer guy this weekend. Who's, there hasn't been a word, there hasn't been a peep from him. We're flying blind with this pod. He's, he's in the Bahamas. So, yeah, it's also just occurred to me, Kieran, that we are the best free publicity Liverpool University could ask for. Uh, yes, yes, they don't seem to think so. I think they're oh, okay. terrified of what I'm going to say next. But uh, <laughs> I like to think we, that, I, I, I like to think that their their admissions uh, requests are through the roof because all these young people going, I'm going to go to Liverpool University, where it seems to be a place where things happen. Um, well, we, we do genuinely get now applications from people on on the back of what they've heard on, on this show. Oh, great! Uh, so, so yeah, it it, it is getting out there. Oh, good. Okay, Kieran, it's, it's questions day. Uh, but we have two big news stories that I would like to discuss first, one global and one less so. Um, this came out of the blue and, and slightly uh, under the radar as well. But the, the Premier League has terminated its biggest overseas TV deal, which is worth more than £500 million over three years with immediate effect. Yes, th- this is with the, the Chinese company, PPTV, um, and they've cited that it's financial rather than political reasons. Um, they were unhappy with the return to football in front of empty stadiums. Uh, the timetable was disrupted. I, th- I think they were looking for a bit more, uh, a bit more assistance from the Premier League, according to sources there. Um, I, I, but my view is they probably overpaid uh, in the first place, as, as you rightly said. This is the the biggest uh, deal. Uh, the parent company of PPTV is a big Chinese conglomerate called Suning, and it's got revenues of thirty billion pounds a year. So, uh, you know, five hundred million pounds over three years. Yeah, you know, that's 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 a good night out, as we as we both know. But uh, at the, at the same time, it's certainly something they could afford. Um, but there does appear to be uh, a, a, a change in the attitude of Chinese investors towards. Um, football in Europe. We, we've seen uh, Tony Xi put, put out of Villa. Yeah. Clearly, 
the shenanigans at Wigan, which we'll come to shortly. They were involved with Northampton. They pulled out. They, they presently own South Southampton, but the owners there are saying they're open to investment. So, uh, yeah, it's, something strange is going to happen. But this, this is going to cost clubs around about nine million pounds a season each, wow. unless they can plug that particular gap with a new broadcaster in China. It was, it, it's hard to separate the politics from the business in China at the moment. We all know that they've got um, issues with, with our government for various things. So do you think it's likely that a, a, another Chinese broadcaster would take the deal up or do you think they would keep their heads down and not, and not potentially annoy the government? Well, I, I think this certainly would require local approval. Uh, as you as you correctly said, uh, the the relationships between Chinese private companies and uh, that the Chinese government doesn't tend to be necessarily as arm's length as it is here in the UK. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. In fact, yeah. That's just a thing. You know, it's just a cultural difference. Um, th- there is huge interest in China in the Premier League. So uh, if, if it's not being shown on, on the traditional channels, I think people won't be happy. Um, and uh, one of our regular uh, question writers, uh, Nigel in uh, in Hong Kong, he's been in contact, and he and he was saying that uh, he he felt that there would be uh, unhappiness if, if they didn't get the opportunity to see see Chinese uh, to see the Premier League in China. And I think from the Premier League's point of view, it's it's a huge market. You've got clubs such as Manchester United, who have got theme parks. Uh, it's just been set up in China. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of tours there in order to, to build up interest and merchandise sales and things of that nature. So I think it's in the interest of the club, certainly the Premier League. Um, and I would imagine the Chinese football fan that, that this, uh, this gets resolved in one way or the other. Well, and also, as you say, there's not only... Chinese ownership in in the Premier League, Wolves in particular, but there's a lot of Chinese companies sponsoring various parts of the Premier League as well. Do you, do you think clubs that are sponsored by Chinese, mainly gambling companies, have got anything to worry about? Um, at this stage, no. Uh, in terms of the gambling regulations, uh, it's, it's again, it's, it's a popular activity uh, in, in in the Far East, so I, I don't think that they'll be willing to turn that particular tap off. But uh, also, if you take a look at perimeter advertising, you know, the number of times you go to a match these days and you see perimeter advertising uh, in in Mandarin or Cantonese is is, uh, quite surprising. Uh, But it's 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 indicative of the interest in the game uh, over there. Right. And uh, you you hinted that Wigan was going to be uh, mentioned. And on Thursday, we'll be getting an update on the ever changing saga. At the club from Caroline Molyneux, who you may recall was with us a few weeks ago. She's chair of the Wigan Athletic Supporters Club. But in the meantime, one of the potential serious buyers has dropped out. Well, yeah, this is the the splendidly named Norman Smurthwaite, uh, which is about <laughs> as northern as you could possibly get in, in for a person's name. Absolute textbook. <laughs> um, now... Norman, uh, he used to be the owner of Port Vale. He, he oh. originally bought Port Vale, and hold on to this, from the administrators oh, no. um, in, I think, about 20, 2012, 2013. Um, I think it's fair to say that his uh, his tenure of ownership is best described as controversial. He banned the local paper because he didn't like what they write, wrote about him. He banned the, the Port Vale fans' trust because he didn't like what they were saying about him. Um, and then in order to, to save costs, and, and this is ingenious in a way, um, 
after matches, uh, the players used to be served with the pies, which were unsold from the merchandise stalls. Nice. So therefore, they were rock hard yeah. and cold, yeah. um, which probably isn't very good from a, from a sports science perspective, but it did save money. Um, since acquiring Port Vale, uh, which he did eventually sell, he, he tried. He bought it, I think, for one point two five million, and he was trying to sell it for a factor of three or four times that amount until it was eventually sold. Uh, and and relations between owners and fans um, have improved. He tried to buy Torquay United until it was pointed out to him you can't own two clubs at once. Which you, you think that somebody would. Um, you know, tested the water on that before getting involved. Uh, by all accounts, he was uh, he was interested in buying Berry. Uh, he was interested in buying Notts County when they went into administration. So his his uh, uh, his approach to football seems to be you know buy it cheap and then try to make a bit of money on the back of that. Um, so w- when it came to Wigan. Uh, there was a lot of hostility uh, initially set up by Port Vale fans, and uh, he, he pulled out. He, he said it was going to cost him up to ten million pounds over the next eighteen months, in, just in terms of operating losses. Uh, he didn't like the fact that the administrators had sold the training ground. He didn't like some of the issues to do with the stadium. So he, he seemed to uh, be very, very vocal in, in, as as to that he's a good guy, and he was forced by circumstances to, to pull out. I I was about to say during that that, um, of course, Robert Maxwell famously wanted to buy own two clubs at the same time. And then you said testing the water. And I thought it wouldn't be appropriate to do a Robert Maxwell joke (laughs) in those circumstances. That's a a, a reference for the kids. But um, I I do have a pleasing image of Norman Smurthwaite uh, offering Robbie Williams a stale pie at the end of a Port Vale game as well. So, um, well, that's that's a shame. I've been abused by Robert Maxwell, by the way. This is one of my my footnotes in history. Yeah. Um, A a company had gone into uh, gone into administration, and I was in charge of the creditors meeting, um, which which meant that uh, as I was the junior on the job, I had to go and uh, check the the names of everybody attending the meeting. And this was taking place in Manchester Town Hall, so Ooh, it was quite, wow. quite a quite a big, uh, yeah, quite lovely. a big glamorous uh, job at the time, and it's you know high profile stuff. Um, and uh, Manchester City Council had a no smoking rule. Robert Maxwell arrived, um, followed by two of his uh, kids. Uh, I think the two sons, not the not the one that's presently uh, up on a charge in New York. Um, and he was smoking this huge cigar. So I, I said, "Yeah, what's your name? What company do you represent?" And uh, then I said, "Excuse me, sir." Uh, do, do you mind that this is a no smoking meeting? And he just said, fuck off and, <laughs> and walked straight past me. Oh, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> doesn't surprise. I, I think uh, let's not explain who Robert Maxwell was to some of our younger listeners. I think Google him, I think, is the easiest thing to do uh, while we get onto the questions. I, I like the fact you're a public spirited sort of person, Kieran, that you'd point out it's a no smoking meeting to Robert Maxwell. Well done. Um, <laughs> uh, our first question comes from David Stout. Now, David has been talking to his friend. Uh, have you, David? Uh, that's the sort of thing I, it's the sort of thing I say when I've got a question I'm not sure about. So yeah, my mate reckons. Um, but David Stout has been talking to his friend about the potential Jaden Sancho move from Dortmund to Manchester United, which is on or off or never happening according to which tabloid you believe. The figure Dortmund are asking for is supposedly 120 million euros. 
made up of an upfront fee. So David says, say that upfront fee is 80 million. Um, it's also a range of performance-related add-ons as well. So David and his friend want to know how this would all be accounted for. So if it is 80 million and he gets a four-year contract amortised at 20 million a year for the upfront fee, where do the add-ons go in the accounts? Right. Well, if you go to the small print of Manchester United's accounts, and it will probably come as no surprise that that's what I've done, um, that they've got a note which, which they refer to as contingent liabilities. And the contingent liability is this is money we might or might not have to pay at some point in the future. <coughs> um, and looking as far uh-huh. as United are concerned, uh, that's that's 74 million quid, which uh, consists of 12 million pounds uh, for international caps, 44 million pounds based on the number of appearances for United or success, and 18 million for other factors, which tends to be things like winning the winning the Ballon d'Or and the, and the Player of the Year award and things of that nature, uh, or or perhaps scoring a cer- certain number of goals. So so that's that's what, how you deal with those things, and the way that uh, you you account for them is that once the Manchester United board believe that that is probable, i.e more than a 50-50 chance of taking place, you then add that on to the, the cost of the transfer and then you amortise it over the remainder of the, uh, the, the, remainder of the contract. So it, it will eventually get amortised if the United board think it's going to take place. Um, but but the, the, the idea of add-ons does, does create you know, problems of which the most famous, I think, is probably that of Seth Johnson, who uh, famously played 59 games for Leeds United because Ken Bates wouldn't let him play a 60th game um, and, and you had the owner dictating to the manager who, who couldn't and could not play uh, because uh, under the terms of the sale of Seth Johnson from Derby County to, to Leeds United, that if he played a 60th game, they'd have to go and pay an extra quarter of a million or half a million pounds in Ken Bates, who's not noted for being generous, simply said no. Well, Ken Bates and Robert Maxwell in the same pod. Who would have who would have thought that? If, if it's like it's like the eighties, they didn't have pods in the eighties, but if they did, they, those two names would have been mentioned quite a lot. Um, again, kids, Google him. Um, the next question, Kieran, is from Lassa Lipola, uh, who I'm guessing is from Finland. So I'm also guessing I've pronounced his name wrongly. Uh, I have a very good friend from Finland. Hello, Miko, uh, who's absolutely astonished at our inability to pronounce multi-syllable words on first sight. Um, but does does tell me that the apparently the Finnish for cornflakes is one of the longest words in the world. Um, <laughs> there you go. Lasse, if you're from Swindon, by the way, not Finland, I do apologise um, for many reasons. Um, Lasse's question, he, Lasse reminds us of two recent discussions. One was about Newcastle being divided into more than 20 companies and one about fit and proper person tests not applying to ownership of the stadium. So he's been putting his thinking cap on and, and says, so if, for example, Mike Ashley wanted to sell his club to a new owner who would not pass the fit and proper person test, could he still sell or pack parcel up the majority of the operations uh, packed in the different companies and sell those to a, a person who wouldn't pass the fit and proper person test? I think this is fascinating, and and this is uh, if uh, if Mike Ashley is listening, I, I think his ears might have just pricked up. Um, so uh, yeah, conceivably this 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 could work. You could divide the club into uh, a series of sets of assets and sell them off one by one 
so that the, the football club itself, which is effectively what is assessed under the owners and directors test, could go to one set of individuals who you know, are, are like, like, like me and you, Kevin, you know, yeah. happy, smiley, uh, no, uh, or, or if, if they delve into my family, they might find a few wrong ones. But, you know, other than that, on the face of it, we're, we're the good guys. Uh-huh. Um, and then the, the other assets, such as the stadium, the training ground and other facilities, could go to uh, the near-do-wells, uh, or near-do-wells even, um, who, elsewhere. Um, so certainly the owners and directors test does not apply to the landlords, because remember, we've got different people owning Coventry City football ground. Yeah. We've got the... Uh, we've got the the West Ham situation where the stadium is owned by uh, the, the local council, and they are not assessed under owners and directors. So th- this could be extended uh, much further uh, in theory. So I, I think Lass has actually come across a, a cunning plan. Oh, so we we might have to refer to this as Lass's loophole. <laughs> yes, Although, yeah, probably. But no, actually, that that <laughs> sounds a bit. That does sound a bit viz, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> at, Give me an idea. Yes, uh, yeah. I knew. I, I I can't see you, but I can visualise exactly what the look on your face is like at the moment. Uh, the Baroness is going to as soon as this pod finishes. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Thomas Taylor. Uh, Thomas Taylor wants to know about a company which has based itself around football through the use of the stock market, uh, Football Index, which is growing quickly. But Thomas basically wants to know what you think about it, Kieran. And uh, why doesn't the Premier League make money from fantasy football? Right. I mean, there's two questions here. So as far as Football Index is concerned, um, it's, it's a slightly different form of gambling. Uh, instead of gambling on who's going to win a match, who's going to score goals and so on, this is linked to um, optostats. Right. So, you know, how many yards did a player run and uh, how many tackles did they make? How many throw-ins did they win? How many aerial duels? So on and so forth. Um, and uh, it's mainly focusing on players uh, you know, what do I think of it? Well, what I think of it is what I think of all gambling uh, is that you don't see poor gambling companies. So the odds are, the, the odds are heavily stacked in favour of the house. Yeah. Uh, by all accounts, th- this football index, which which I think is jersey based, takes a takes a two percent commission, um, and and it pays out dividends to the people that get involved. I mean, you know, if if you like to gamble, um, th- this is an alternative way of uh, you know in, indulging that particular. Uh, pastime hobby however you wish to, to describe it um is it better or worse than the others i, I don't gamble uh, because i i i do statistical analysis um and, and therefore um you know I, i'm not not hugely uh, in uh, i'm not hugely in favor uh, especially without again going into details uh, i've got families and friends who have been on the wrong side of gambling and of course that, yes, that's of not course. good to see of course as, um, as far as the as far, sorry as far as the fantasy football is concerned, um, the, the Premier League do make money out of it because they they effectively sell uh, centrally the rights to use club logos and things of that nature to um, the, the the fantasy football companies. So it, it does generate some money for the Premier League. 
Okay. Um, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Mark Ridley uh, makes an interesting point. Mark Ridley points out many non-league clubs in England and quite a few league clubs in Scotland have artificial pitches, uh, which Mark quite rightly points out have improved considerably since the 80s when they were basically green concrete. They cost about a half a million pound to install and they require upkeep, of course. But do they provide sufficient income to justify their cost? And why does a club like Harrogate have to dig them up when they get promoted when they are really a community asset um right well if we start off with the harrogate issue um if you go into the efl rule book which yeah, that's how i spent my, my morning oh, um and rule rule 15.1 you know but close but close to uh, both our hearts of course um and it's just unequivocal um you are not allowed to use uh, artificial pitches and for that rule to be changed would require um, a vote by EFL owners and clearly somebody would have to put that forward yes. uh, for the vote to begin with. Any um, explanation as to why that Kieran they don't I mean I know they were, they were I mean I was totally against them back in the day the QPR one was a disgrace the Luton one was was terrible it wasn't proper football but I, I, I mean yeah, as Mark points out they're very good services now so I wonder if they've got an explanation as to why they're so against them. Well, I mean, they have now been approved by FIFA. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, if you take a look at the SPFL, a quarter of the teams in the SPFL use them, Livingston, Hamilton Ackies and Kilmarnock. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other nine clubs in the SPFL are totally opposed to them. And also there was a poll taken by the, the SPFA, the, uh, the Scottish Professional Footballers uh, Association, and their members were opposed to them as well. So I think oh, there's okay. still a lot of suspicion right. that whilst improvements have been made, um, they are that they're against them. Uh, I think that they're used in the in the Scottish Championship, Falkirk and QO, right, QOTS. Oh, that's that's not Queen's Queen of the Stone. Queen of the South, yeah. Queen of the South, yeah, I think it's Queen yeah. of the Stone Age. No, um, no Queen of the South. I, I, we would know if there was a club called Queen of the Stone Age in the Scottish football. It's yes. Queen of the South. Yeah, yeah. They're based in Dumfries. Oh, right. You see, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, um, but what we are seeing increasingly uh, is, is hybrid pitches. Um, so, you know, Wembley, Anfield, many of them where, where it's a combination, I think it's called Mastergrass or some yeah, other system, yeah. where they've got a lot of polypropylene. You, know, you, you and I both grew up in the 70s and 80s when, you know, by by January, teams were playing on rolled mud. Yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, so, you know, there, there have been huge uh, improvements in the quality of pitches since then. Uh in terms of the issues in terms of community assets, I mean, Harrogate broke even in 2019. So the money through the increased utilisation of the pitch and, you know, we've used this phrase, which, yeah, it isn't a nice phrase, sweating the assets, making yeah. greater use of the ground, um, that does arise as a result of Harrogate's initiative. But they knew when they applied to the EFL that they'd have to rip up the pitch um, there, there's no indication of support from other clubs. Right. Um, and it's a case of persuading owners, managers and players to, to buy into artificial pitches that I think is going to be the challenge. Yeah, I think Ali and the Baroness would probably like us to point out that we got older in the 70s and 80s. We didn't necessarily grow up. Um, it's it's interesting, <laughs> though. It's, it's, um, Sutton 
last season, Sutton were, were doing, what was it the season before? I can't, but Sutton were doing really well, uh, local to me, very local to me, were doing very well and looked like promotion to the league was was uh, very possible. And I happened to be doing some filming there and got chatting to one of the the, the directors who, who said they, were, they weren't anxious about promotion, they were desperate for it, but also said it would it would actually really negatively impact their finances because the the pitch was used every single day by by schools or by people who are hiring it so it it mark's point that it's a community asset is a is an interesting one it, it's it's interesting as well that the year for you don't get a couple of years to rip it up you have to rip the pitch up straight away before you can start playing football this is why they'd be sharing with doncaster i believe wouldn't they initially harrogate so there's no leeway it's simple, it's as simple as that as soon as you get promoted that plastic pitch goes Yep. Yeah. It's uh, that it's unequivocal uh, the, the stance taken by the EFL. Uh, yeah, rule fifteen point one, uh, unlike some of the stuff in in the EFL handbook, is is one sentence. It's one line, and that's it. You, you do not play on artificial pitches. Full stop. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Well, talking of one sentence, Ryan Loftus uh, starts his question by saying, just a quick question. Uh, we've been doing this long enough to know, Kieran, quite often that turns into an essay, but it is a quick question. Ryan Loftus has a quick question about championship prize money. He says, we all know that each position in the Premier League is worth a couple of extra million, but what difference does it make in what he describes as England's true Premier Division? Uh, there speaks a fan of a championship club. Uh, hang, on, hang on, there's a PS. I'm asking as a fan of Millwall, I told you, who could have finished anywhere between 10th and 5th last season, between 20th and 5th, I think you'll find, Ryan. But um, uh, it's, a, it's a quick question. Is there a quick answer? It is. Uh, as, as Morrissey once said, uh, what difference does it make? It makes none. Um, it, there is no such thing as uh, prize money in the championship. Huh. Uh, the, only, the only benefits is that if you get to the playoffs – um, you get an extra home fixture, but that's about as far as it goes. So 
you know, even even when we were looking at Derby a couple of weeks ago, and, and they and they could have had a potential points deduction if that had dropped them from I think eighth or ninth where they finished to fourteenth or fifteenth, it would not have hit them financially at all. It's only in the Premier League where um, in a non-COVID world, it's now worth around about £2.7 million per position. So, you know, for there, 5th and 10th is, uh, you know, is, what, you know £13 million quid. So, in the championship, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's just the honour of finish 10th or 5th. Oh, wow, OK. Um, Mark Tuckett has got, I like this question. This is a proper football fan question. This is a proper what if Eeyore type question. Um, Mark said, which is why I like it so much. Mark says, given the current pandemic and its impact on football, is it more financially beneficial for Leeds United to have missed out on promotion last season and been promoted this? Or would it have been better if they got promoted last season and then went straight back down like Norwich? Um, it would It would make far better for them to have been promoted at the end of last season. And, and, and the reason for that is that if Leeds had had another season um, in the championship, um, they would have been the club to have potentially lost the most in terms of matchday income because uh, th- their matchday was, was over £18 million pounds in 2018-19, uh, which is uh, which is a testament to the fact that they were selling out every week. And if you go to uh, if, if you rock up at Ellen Road as an away fan, uh, it was forty five notes the last time I went. Yeah. Um, so you know it, it is it's expensive to watch football there uh, on a match by match basis. I think season tickets are far more reasonable. Um, so they they would have potentially had to uh, have the whole of this season without that match day income, which which is a big contributor to their overall budget. Um, the, the manager, my understanding, is uh, the, the best paid manager in the championship. He's on around about three and a half million pounds a year. And, and I suspect he wouldn't have stayed um, either because out of his own choice or because the club would have had to have had cutbacks. Yeah, they probably lost £20 million last season. They lost £20 million the previous season. Therefore, under those circumstances, uh, they'd have been looking uh, at squeaky bum time from an FFP scenario. Right. Um, so you know, I think they'd, they'd have little choice but to, to cut back on expenditure. Do you know, I, like you, Kieran, I can't. I'm, I'm just hoping and praying for the day when we can all get back to football when there's stadiums are sold out on match day but I really hope it happens in time for the first Man United Leeds game because that's a proper fixture isn't it that's that's oh, one I've, I've, I've been to Old Trafford to watch Manchester United Leeds and, and ooh, I was well, just really? it, that and that was in when I was at university so that had been what 80 81 oh um, yeah and a league cup game Leeds scored after four minutes Peter Barnes was playing for them at the time um, and it was World War, absolutely really? crazy stuff. Ow. Yeah, kids, uh, add Peter Barnes to your list of people to Google. <laughs> this Ken Bates, Peter Barnes, who are these people going on about? Um, underrated player, I thought Peter Barnes. Anyway, Luke Murphy. Now, Luke, uh, I like I like Luke because Luke, like me, uh, seems to see football finance mainly through the medium of kits, basically. And Luke's question is. Do clubs pay the manufacturer or the sponsor for all the kits and training gear they use throughout the season, or does that all come free as part of the deal? And there's a follow-up question from Ian McLaughlin. Um, I pronounce that name with some certainty because that was my mother's maiden name. But Ian McLaughlin uh, has been listening since day one uh, and loves Kieran's tales of spreadsheets and debauchery. There's the, there's the title of your autobiography, isn't it? You'd, 
You'd buy, you'd buy that book in Waterstones, wouldn't you? This looks interesting. Spreadsheets and debauchery. Okay. Um, but Ian's another Leeds fan, and he wants to know whether the long-rumoured new deal with Adidas, which has finally happened, replacing Kappa as kit manufacturer, will make a difference to Leeds financially. Right. Well, let's take a look at those uh, questions in turn. First of all, Luke's question. Um, it will depend upon the club. If you are a League One or League Two club, you will be given X sets of kit as part of the deal from the manufacturer. So it could be that you're given six sets of home kits, six sets of away kits, and anything in excess of that you will pay more for. When it comes to the bigger clubs, when you've got the likes of Adidas paying Manchester United £75 million a year, um, they tend to be, you know, if, if you want some more kit, they'll, they'll just send a batch over because right, right. You know, the, the the marginal cost to them, because you know, they only cost you know, five or ten or each to produce. Is that, is that a siren I can hear in the background? Uh, yes, it is. I'm, I'm tempted to do the brilliant Eric Morecambe joke. He's not going to sell much ice cream going at that speed. But um, <laughs> let's, we've, we're already stuck in the 80s. Let's not go back to the 70s. But yes, it, it is a siren, Ken. You're getting nostalgic for, for South London now, are you? <laughs> I am indeed. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, such a contrast that yesterday, um, as it was the start of the football season, and I, was, I, I said to the Baroness, oh, well, you know, it's uh, – who was it? It was Walsall versus Sheffield Wednesday. Uh-huh. Um, and she says you're not doing that, and sh- and she dragged me out. We we live uh, we live about uh, 500 yards away from um, uh, a, a a vinery, whatever you yeah, wherever they make wine. Yeah, yeah, I me, mean, I know nothing about alcohol. Vine- so, so we vin- went on a, a vineyard, kid. They call them a vineyard. vineyard. Yes, so, yeah, yes. vineyard is fine. Vineyard, vineyard is what we tend to call it. Vin- the- vineyard sounds like, yes. So, so I, I was I was taken I was taken on my first ever vineyard tour. Um, which uh, which was perhaps slightly wasted on me, um, but uh, but then they sat us down afterwards uh, and, and they brought uh, two glasses of each of the wines that they make, mm-hmm. of which of course I consumed precisely zero, um, and I had to give the I had to give the Baroness uh, a piggyback home uh, from Beacon Down, uh, the, the local vineyard, uh, but she she said it was very good, uh, and and to get my revenge this morning, I, I dragged her out to uh, the, the beach at seven o'clock in the morning to walk the dog. Your your life couldn't be more different to my life, Kieran. You know that. Just 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 remind me what football team again you support as we talk about your tour of the vineyard. Uh, Brighton Hove Albion. Yeah, there you go. And I rest of my case. Okay, um, right. So so uh, higher up the league. Um, how did we get talking about? Vine- oh yes, police cars. Um, higher up the league, then. So clubs get as many free kits as they want, basically. Right. Yeah, yeah. And also because the the club will be always getting requests for signed shirts and things of this nature. Um, what they don't particularly want is that you know, if, if the club's giving out some shirts to a local charity, if the club turns around to the charity and says, well, well you know, Adidas have said we've got to go and charge you 50 quid for each shirt. Yeah. That, that, you know, from, a, from a public relations point of view, yeah, it doesn't look too clever. So, so you know, Adidas and Nike for the big boys, they're, they're going to be pretty chilled about it within reason. Um, when it comes to um, the Leeds kit and, and the deal with Adidas, uh, I mean, Leeds have had practically every kit manufacturer. They've had Nike and Macron and Kappa and God knows who else. But now they're back with Adidas. Um, 
They will get a fixed fee from Adidas. So we don't know how much. Um, but they also get a commission on each sale. I think the advantage to Leeds is that, you know, we know that Leeds is, is a big city club, um, but it also has a fairly decent international following. The very fact that, that Leeds played Manchester United in Australia in a friendly last summer is indicative of they've, they've got international appeal, is that Adidas have lots of retail outlets dotted around the world. Um, and, and that will help to increase the volume of sales on which, of course, the club's getting. It's, it's normally about a 7%, 7% commission on shirts. Leeds are a, a huge club. So Adidas won't have been waiting for them to get into the Premier League before they uh, s- slipped in with this deal, will they? No, the deal was actually signed in January. Ah, okay. Um, and it, it, yeah, we were talking about contingent payments earlier on. Um, it was uh, it was it was X million and then X million times two or three uh, for each season that Leeds are in the in the Premier League. So, uh, you know, fr- from a, from a commercial point of view, again, going back to uh, Mark Tuckett's question earlier, uh, the, the club is far better off going up this season. Mm. Now, our next question comes from uh, another Luke. This is Luke Hatherley uh, uh, with another interesting proposal, actually. So we've already got Lasse's loopholes. We could have Luke's Luke's loophole. Is that better? No. Um, Luke starts by saying he loves the pod, especially the comedy from Kevin. Uh, I imagine Guy was over the moon when he finally got a question that mentioned me rather than you. So that's this, it, that, this is definitely in. It's Luke Guy would have been going, this is, this is in. Hang on, we've got a million listeners. I'm off. Um, Luke loves the pod, uh, but I, this is a really interesting uh, suggestion, I think. Luke says, what happens to all the money when clubs or players are fined by the by the league, either for misbehaviour or FFP infractions, etc.? Why not, says Luke, put all that money into a pot that is then shared out to all the other clubs at the end of the season? It might prevent clubs breaking uh, FFP rules or keeping their players under control if they think that money is going into their competitors' pockets. That's, is that a good concept? It is a good set concept. And indeed, um, when the EFL first introduced FFP, um, this was one of the proposals. Um, and, and my understanding, and I might have got this wrong, was that it was subject to a potential legal challenge um, from a club that looked as if it might be a subject to fines. Because it, because before they in, they've only introduced points deductions in, in the last, uh, I think, since 2016. Mm. Um so as a consequence of that, the, the FFP fines, in theory, should be going to charity. Um, as far as the Football Association is concerned, I, I delved into their accounts when, when researching this one, and, and they do have a heading in the accounts called Other Income. And I think they, they, they generated around about £10 million from fines and things of a similar nature. Now, in theory, I think that goes because the the, the, the FA are not club orientated. They could spend that anywhere. Um, but uh, it looks as if that goes for under the umbrella heading of good of the game. So it will go, be going out in grants and, and support networks and things of that nature. Okay. Now, our final question, Kieran, comes from Will Jennings. Um, and Will's question crystallises quite a few of the areas we've been talking about recently around fan ownership and, and other models. Uh, Will talks about Scottish Lowland League side Caledonian Braves, who have started an app which allows you for £20 uh, to help make decisions relating to the club, as well as accessing footage of, of games and all the usual stuff you'd get from a club app. 
And Will says, at a time when the culture sector is rapidly considering all kinds of new ideas to stay afloat, tell me about it, are other football clubs considering alternative ownership management structures to ensure their survival? Although Will does remind us that you might remember that Ebsleet Town had a similar scheme which suffered huge dropout after year one when everyone got bored of it. But but basically, Will simply asks, will clubs in this country ever move away from the essentially rich benefactor supported by a gambling company sponsor as a model? Is that the only model that British football can sustain? Um, it, it depends where you set your ceiling in, in respect of this. Uh, if you have a club which is being funded directly or quasi-directly by fans, and this uh, this uh, this this proposal of Wills, or sorry, that the Caledonian uh, team, it has it certainly has some merits. I think it will provoke some interest, but is it a novelty as much as a management decision? Man- management by committee genuinely doesn't tend to work. The bigger the committee gets, there's an ideal size yeah. for a committee, and it should never really be more than seven, uh, according to academic research done by uh, universities and things of this nature. Um, so when you've got hundreds or potentially thousands of people, the, the more people that get involved, the less they ought to, they feel involved. Yeah. Um, so and there's a, there's a danger that uh, they they then go and uh, I think the the technical term is see their arse when when their uh, ideas don't go through. So looking at the the Caledonian proposals, one of which is is I think something to do with the club crest choosing the the, the color of the kits in future seasons and this nature, all of which very very laudable, but um, that there, there does tend to be quite a, a high churn rate. Um, and it can also lead to to factionalization um, when you have some more um, what, what on on the face of it see seem to be do- a democratic uh, ownership models. I mean, I, uh, I I as you know, I live in Manchester for most of my life. Mm. Um, FC United of Manchester was sort of a semi brainchild of one of my colleagues uh, when I used to uh, when I was at university in Manchester uh, lecturing. And um, that worked really well. I mean, you know, FC United was 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 a fantastic experience. Yeah. But that that club ended up having civil war, and it got really nasty um, when when different groups of people decided that they their vision for the future was the one. Um, and you know, the club sort of suffered both on and off the pitch. Sort of had a hiatus for all the progress they were making as a result of that. I just point out, Kieran, that uh, see their arse seems to be your technical term for a lot of things. It covers a lot of bases, that expression, during this pod. Um, Will's, I think it's interesting that Will talks about the Ebsolete Town experiment, which was a few years ago, which um, quite a few fans seem to think was like a real-life championship manager. They the People who didn't have any affiliation to Ebsolete Town at all became part of this, this scheme because they thought they would actually influence all sorts of things, non-playing as well as playing. And and as Will says, it, it fell away very shortly. I mean, is is it pessimistic to think that we're so ingrained in the rich owner model in this company that we that we really never will be able to look beyond fan, proper fan ownership, except at a level like Clapton, which we, yeah, we had a massive response when we, when we had uh, people from Clapton talking about their club. That at that level, um, it, it is possible, but beyond that, there's only one way you can run a football club in this country, and that's find somebody who can afford it. I'm not necessarily certain. Remember, Wickham 
um, were in League One before they they, they went into private ownership uh, a, a few months ago. We do have clubs such as Motherwell in Scotland, which have been successful. Uh, I, I think you, you have to set out the club's objectives. Um, if you want to succeed in football beyond a certain level, the chances are that the clubs are going to lose money or they're going to be operating at a budget um, such that, that they that they effectively have their own ceiling in, in the sense that they that they can't compete for players and managers and facilities uh, against some of the other clubs in the division. So unless they've got a you know, fantastic rapport in the uh, in the dressing room and they happen to strike it lucky with a couple of apprentices or loanies, then it, it's going to be a real challenge. Um, so it, it, it's down to the club itself. If you, you, if you are perfectly happy being at your present level uh, as a community club, then for heaven's sake, keep it up because A, you're doing something great for your locality. You are giving identity to your town or city. Um, and, and you're also having a good time. Yeah. Wickham fans looked for private ownership precisely because of that. They thought they could no longer generate enough income to to support or compete at that level, which is slightly ironic because then they've just got promoted to the championship. So, Yeah. Yeah. and uh, But they, they, they were in genuine danger of going into administration right. uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, so, so when the new owner came in, who's an American lawyer, um, and, and I had a few conversations with people from Wickham during those uh, during the time when he was making a pitch. You know, I think there, there were concerns about. Uh, I mean, you, you've been to Adams Park. I've been to Adams yeah. Park. Um, it's uh, it's it's a very valuable piece of real estate, um, and I, th- I think that was part of the the concerns. You know, would the would the club be moved off to an you know an out of town site? Um, and uh, could this be a, another example of what we've seen at Coventry? What we've seen, uh, what, what we saw at Brighton. Yeah, we got we got kicked out, and, and our ground was sold uh, for property developers. And it, and it and it takes a long time to get back to an even keel. Yeah, you were away for eight years, was it? In the end, well, it, it was two years at Gillingham, and and then we were we were playing at an, an athletics track. Yeah, for about eight or nine years. So yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, it wasn't fun watching it, uh, or it was very green. Yeah, I, I realised, and I was trying to feign interest in Brighton, but uh, failed miserably. Basically, um, <laughs> Will, thank you for that. It's, it's it's a really interesting question, and I wanted to ask it because it's it sort of draws a line under a conversation that we've been having quite a lot recently about fan ownership. So I think we've covered all those bases now, but that's an interesting point. Thank you to everybody who's asked a question. Thank you if you're one of the million people who's downloaded our pod once or one of the 100,000 people who's downloaded it 10 times. I'm not sure how it works. Uh, But thank you all. We appreciate your listenership uh, very much. We'll be back on Thursday, and I'll hand you over to Kieran for the closing speech. Well, well. First of all, thanks again from from us. Uh, I think I think we 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 are genuinely chuffed at hitting this particular yeah. number. <laughs> yes, we are <laughs> because because we got very giddy when we first got to ten thousand, no, which was yeah. after about ten shows, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that was cause for for celebrations. Um, yep, yeah, it's it's not up with Kevin's BAFTA award, of course. You know, we, we, yeah, we nomination, Nomi- nomination, Kieran. Okay. Oh, I, I, um, did, I did win the Writers Award, but that's you know fine. BAFTA is just a nomination, Kieran. But, but it, BAFTA is the fact that your name is on a BAFTA certificate is is hats off as far as I'm concerned. 
Um, well, you've seen it, it when it's, it's on my wall. It's very. I, I have seen it. <laughs> I, I, I have seen it every every time I, I go into your house. You, you're busy pointing at it as we yes. walk past. Yeah, and I'm I'm starting to wonder how long it was. 2016. I'm starting to wonder how long it'll be before it seems sad to have something from 2016 hanging on your wall. But um, yeah, I could have a Van Gogh. That's from 18 whatever. Never mind. Carry on. Um, so if, if you if you enjoy the show, if you like the show, if, if you could give that that big purple thing in front of you a bash, <laughs> um, it's that Apple icon, if the Apple podcast app icon. Um, give us a review, a subscribe as well. We, we don't understand how it works, myself and Kevin. We, we are genuine Luddites on the technology side of things. But but producer guy says uh, it's good for business. Um, we, we're still awaiting delivery of, of our cars. Uh, hopefully, we'll also be getting delivery of some Beacon Down uh, wine um, well, yeah, from the Vineyard to, Tour as well. We'll have to wrestle it off the Baroness first, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she's very protective of her, of her rosé, uh, <laughs> fizz, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, and uh, if, if you could give us a review, it, it, it makes a difference to the Apple algorithm. Uh, but apart from that... Our big thanks as always, and stay safe. Yeah, I can't tell you, Kieran. You'll have to say stay safe again. That's always the last words. But I just wanted to say I can't tell you how unimpressed Ali was last week when she asked me what I was chuckling at. And I said I was chuckling at you saying bashing the big purple thing. <laughs> uh, uh, our sense of humour doesn't always cross. So um, our final, those two final words again, please, Kieran. Stay safe. Buy a son for football.